6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Jude, verse 5. Galatians 5.13 says, Even called to liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. That broadens the definition considerably. Small point, some of you who have been various, and incidentally, this whole thing, this uh, says it fell in one day, three and 20,000. For those of you that want to track that down, and I won't take the time tonight now, but you can for your notes, is Numbers 25. There's an occasion in Numbers 25 where God punishes them by sending a plague. And if you read Numbers 25, verse 9, you'll discover 24,000 died from that plague. Right? And you'll find some of your friends, your, your skeptics down the street, will say, see, the Bible contradicts itself. Because Numbers 25, 9, because they read that in some pamphlet, Numbers 25, 9 says 24,000, and here Paul doesn't know better. He says 23,000. Paul is writing by the Holy Spirit. What does Paul say? 23,000 fell the first day. No contradiction. You want to split hairs? No, I don't think it's a textual error. I think Paul, the Holy Spirit has given Paul a more precise insight. I don't know where he got it, but from the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, Neither let us put Christ to the test, as some of them also tested him and were destroyed by serpents. Might be fun to take a look at that. This is one of the more fun ones. Numbers 21. Let's turn to Numbers. A lot of the whole thing tonight is out of the book of Numbers. Time was a little longer. We take the book of Numbers, but that's probably a little. Numbers chapter 21. We pick it up about verse 5. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There they go again, huh? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. In other words, they don't like the manna. I'm going to suggest that neglect of the manna is tempting the Lord. I want you to focus on what they did wrong. They murmured against the manna, right? Doesn't sound too bad. You expect to get their wrists slapped, right? And see what God does. Verse 6, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people, and many people of Israel died. You know, one interesting thing the Lord tries to get across to us is that he doesn't mess around. You know, he goes out of his way to instruct us. And you, of course, know the story of what happens. Wherefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. We have Notice the first thing they confess, see? And we have spoken against the Lord and against thee, praying to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, that is a brazen serpent. The concept of fire, the concept of brass, linguistically are linked, because brass was the metal they had that could withstand heat. Therefore, brazen things were typically, things that had to sustain heat, like an altar, were made of brass. 
brass and fiery were Levitically linked. Make us a, in a fiery serpent and set it, up, set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. So Moses made a serpent of bronze, put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, and he beheld the serpent of bronze, that he lived. You go about your business, you get a snake bite, you look up on the hill, and there's the, this pole, which by tradition is a cross, and on it there's a brass serpent. And if you looked at that, you made it. If you're doing that back in Israel's day, it must have been strange. And you and I reading this might also think it's strange, but for Jesus Christ himself illuminating this for us by saying, as the serpent was raised in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be raised up, right? Now this really gets freaky when you think it through. Because that brass serpent that God, God sets this up here to create a pun. Technically, you'd call it a pun. He has set up a model of none other than the cross at Calvary. You're saying that, bra that brass serpent is a type of whom? Jesus Christ. Because Jesus himself identifies himself with it, just as this Moses did this. So shall the Son of Man be left. He will be put up on a pole and raised up. So whoever looks to him would be saved. Over him the serpent would have no power. Interesting, isn't it? Strange that Jesus Christ can be typified by a brazen serpent. Brass means judgment. Serpent means sin. What's all that about? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says he was made sin for us. You and I have no capacity to understand what that means. The Holy One of God was made sin for us. That's why he could scream, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As is quoted in Psalm 22 and as, as it comes from the cross. Jesus Christ identifies himself with his brazen serpent in John 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus. You know the story. I have to give you an interesting historical footnote. How many of you are familiar with the symbol of the medical profession called the caduceus? Especially the army and so forth, they have a, a, a little cross with two serpents, right? And that's supposed to come from Aesculapius, which was the god of medicine, right? Except what's interesting, incidentally, he was presumably the son of Apollo born, but he actually was born in Alexandria. It's interesting that the symbol of Aesculapius, which came from this earlier historical event, was a single serpent on a cross. In the Greek mythology, Hermes has two serpents, and it erroneously was adopted as a symbol of the medical profession. And I'm particularly amused by this because that's actually the symbol of trade. So if you doctors, you know, if okay, so... Uh, anyway, so much of all of that. Um, another interesting insight about the brazen serpent is that some um, 690 years later, the brazen serpent was still in the hands of Israel and was being worshipped. And in 2 Kings 18, we have the story where the king smashes it to avoid that because it was being made a fetish. It, was, it became an idol. Maybe that's why Noah's Ark is still so carefully preserved up there, even though we know it's there and we got it aspects of it, there's issues. Uh, that's one of them, perhaps. We seem to quit 
the creation ahead of the Creator whenever we get a chance. Well, anyway, back to 1 Corinthians 10. So we got through verse 9. Verse 10 says, Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed by the destroyer. And this uh, probably refers to Korah, Dathan, and Byram in number 16. You know, they said, Moses, you're taking too much upon yourself. They had a group of them. They didn't think he should be in charge. Moses says, well, we'll let the Lord decide. I have to take one peek at this. Uh, turn to number 16. There's, there's another insight that I think, kinda, I think is kind of fun. You all probably know the story because you remember how Edward G. Robinson fell down the... Those of you in California that are worried about earthquakes, let me show you an earthquake. This is a... This one's in This is a real earthquake. Um, and is it, you find the story in number 16 where Korah and Dathan and Abiram have this rebellion. And uh, Moses and Aaron try to warn them and they won't listen. And about verse 21, he says, separate yourselves and so forth. Depart from you from the tents of these wicked men in verse 26. And then, of course, what happens is uh, um, verse 30, but if the Lord make a, make a new thing and the earth open her mouth and swallowed them up, with all that appertains to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then ye shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. I think I get the message, right? <laughs> it came to pass, and say the word Sheol in the Hebrew is the word Hades in the Greek, and is commonly translated hell. It's not Gehenna. It came to pass, verse 31, that as he faced speaking these words, that the ground split open that was under them, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, and their houses, and all the men that appertained to Korah, and all their goods. They and all that appertained to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed upon them, and they perished from among the congregation. The Lord made his point. Where's Sheol? It's an abstract idea. It's the abode of the dead, right? This says it's down there. Where is Gehenna? Outer darkness, opposite. Right? You've heard me speak of that. Here's a, another of the several references that, the, the, that there's an abode of the dead. Where? In the earth somewhere. Jesus said that. As Jonah spent three days, three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man spend three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Figure of speech, maybe. After number 16, I think it's more than the figure of speech. I think it's very literal. But that gets into the whole Abuso thing, and that's getting to next time. Neither murmur. Why should we not murmur? Because of Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him, shall he not also freely give us all things? Romans 8, specific verse 32. That's why we don't murmur, because we have everything that we, and beyond what we can imagine. Well, I'll just continuing. I want to get through 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, now all these things happened unto them for examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages are come. And verse 12 is your text for the evening. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. That's Paul's comment about self-confidence. Being confident in yourself rather than the Lord. Your remedy for all of this is your memory verse for the evening, verse 13. You, most of you probably already have command of the verse. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not permit you to be attempted above that ye are able, but will, with the temptation, also make the way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. 
Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Okay, so we have uh, the key here. Um, this whole idea of uh, murmuring sounds so innocent, but I'm going to just finish murmuring off with one other verse. Uh, turn to Revelation chapter 21, where it lists, this is near the end of the second to the last chapter of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, it lists a whole bunch of really bad things. It speaks of murderers and fornicators and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. By the time you get to verse 8, you've heard about fire and brimstone. We're talking now Gehenna, not Hades, Gehenna. Everlasting, forever. Total hopeless alienation from God spoken of as the outer darkness. In this list of those that participate in this, I'd like you to notice the way it starts. Who are the first on the list of 20, Revelation 21.8? But the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and fornicators and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars. That's quite a list. What heads the list? Fear. Fearfulness. The anxious. Never think of that, do you, as a sin? I worry a lot. That's sin. I can, I'm getting more and more. I confess it as sin. Worry is assuming a responsibility God did not intend you to have. That's what worry is. I worry a lot, and I shouldn't. When I worry, I'm not trusting him. And candidly, I don't trust him enough. And I have more reason than most of you have for trusting him completely. Because what he's done in my life is unbelievable. But I won't get into that all tonight. That's a whole other thing. Week by week, what he does in my life is flabbergasting. And still I have to keep learning the lesson over again. Trust him in everything. The big things, the little things. Okay, so the key in 1 Corinthians 10 is verse 13. All right? Now, what we could do here, but I'll spare you the details. You can just put in your notes for you to skim through Hebrews chapter 3. And four, it's the same kind of thing. Harden not your hearts as in the provocation. Is the key verse. Picks up about verse seven. Wherefore is the Holy Spirit say Hebrews three seven, wherefore is the Holy Spirit saith today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of the trial of the wilderness. Again, it's a reference to that same experience. Well, your fathers put me to the test and proved me and saw my works forty years, and, and he goes on how he how God was grieved with this generation because of their unbelief. And it's much uh, a similar type of uh, exhortation by the writer to Hebrews on the same thing. As speaking to the brethren, not to unbelievers, to the brethren, to beware of an evil heart of unbelief, departing from the living God, and so forth. In fact, I'll just take the first verse of chapter 4, and then we'll get on back to, the, back to Jude. Uh, Hebrews 4, 1, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest any of you should seem to come short of it. So there's a New Testament, practical, day-by-day -day application of this business of avoiding the wilderness wanderings, going, entering in to his rest, entering into the promised land. Now, there are other warnings in the New Testament. I won't take a lot of time now because I, I got some places I want to head if I can before the time is up. 1 John 5.15 does tell us that there is a sin unto death. Do I mean a loss of salvation? I don't think so. 
Sickness, weakness, and death is also described in 1 Corinthians 11 if you take the Lord's Supper unworthily. Does that mean you lose your salvation? No, it means you got sick. Why is there sickness? Because of taking the Lord's Supper unworthily. God does deal with this. The, 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 perhaps the most dramatic example is Ananias and Sapphira, where they lied to the Holy Spirit in Acts 5, first 11 verses. Strange story. Now, I'm not here to say they were saved, but I'm not here to say that they weren't saved either. I don't think that's the issue. God will end a life if it helps the body. That doesn't mean they lost their salvation. That's a different issue, I believe. But clearly, there are some things that upset the Lord, and there's some things he would not have us do. And I don't believe it's an eternal security issue. I believe it's a walk issue. I believe it's one of not grieving the Holy Spirit, and so on. Getting back to Israel, when Israel sinned, what did they have as the remedy? They had the altar and the tabernacle. They also had a laver to wash in, right? The concept of the laver is to wash. How is that amplified in the New Testament? Turn to Ephesians 5. You all know Ephesians 5 about wives, submit yourself to your husbands. I know your husbands have read uh, verse 22 to you, gals. And I, I assume you've read to him verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Guys, have you given yourselves for your wife? But here he's speaking of Christ, loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it. How? How is Christ cleansing the church with a washing of the water by the word. This is not a verse on baptism. It's a word on Bible study, devotions, the word. The way you wash yourself is with your with the word. We use that model all the way through. When we studied the book of Revelation, especially in the chapter four of the throne of God, I think I made reference to the analogy the Holy Spirit draws between the labor and the glassy sea. The labor in the Old Testament was God's word. We wash in it. The glassy sea, by then with washings over, we're redeemed. What do we do then? We stand on it. Pun, isn't it? That's bizarre. It's a pun. Designed by the Holy Spirit. That word which we wash in now, we stand on then. Interesting, isn't it? Which leads me to one other uh, verse that you should have in your repertoire, and that's the Christian's bar of soap. If you need washing, where do you find the Christian's bar of soap? How do you scrub up? There's a specific verse that will solve your problem for you. It's 1 John 1.9 is the Christian's bar of soap. 1 John 1.9, the Christian's bar of soap. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as you study this and you become frightened, good heavens, I've done that. Have I lost my salvation? Scurry quickly to 1 John 1, 9 and scrub up. Confess your sins and he is faithful. It's his faithfulness that's your refuge, not yours. Your faith is a gift from him. If you're faithful, don't get smug because Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells you it was a gift. Nothing you did. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, it's because the Holy Spirit gave it to you. 
for by grace ye are saved through faith, and that, that is the faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift. Why? So that no flesh can boast. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, part A, part B, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Boy, I'm grateful for that cleansing because he's completely does it right. Now, we have, you know, sort of rambled here. Um, and those of you that know my capacity for library research are relieved because I could have waltzed out all kinds of other obscure things that would probably have no practical benefit for you when we're talking about, we're talking about Israel in the wilderness. Boy, that can go on for a semester, you know. So I felt it seemed appropriate in verse 5 to, in fact, explore the lessons of Israel. But I want to, before we, we're going to go on next time to spook show time, verse 6. But before we do, I don't want to leave the history of Israel since this is the burden of this letter is apostasy. I want to share with you something that's going on in the body of Christ. And so it's sort of a parenthesis, but it's appropriate at this time, both because of the verse 5, but also because of the whole tenor of this letter. And we'll talk more about it. We won't, we won't exhaust the subject tonight. But let me describe some things to you. The early church, somewhere along the way, and I'm not, I didn't do enough historical research to know exactly when the errors started to creep in. I think it was Augustine somewhere along the way. The Christian church got it into its head that the Jews crucified their Messiah. There was a notion emerging that the promises that were made to Israel were forfeited because she rejected and crucified her Messiah. And those promises devolved upon the church. And the spiritual Israel idea, and there are aspects of that that are valid, don't misunderstand me, but that theme predominated from roughly the days of Augustine onwards throughout the denominational Christian church and became the excuse for anti-Semitism. It became the theme by which the Crusaders could have contest, contests to see how many Jewish babies they could get on a sword. It became the, the trauma that today still represents a cultural gap between people of Jewish background and so-called Christians. Bear in mind, in their mind, a Gentile is equivalent to a Christian. Hitler was a Christian. The writings of Nietzsche and others laid the philosophical groundwork on top of that for what ultimately became the Holocaust. Okay? The philosophical roots for the, the abuse of mankind, which we call the Holocaust, specifically aimed at Israel or Judaism, had its roots in the Christian church of some centuries prior. So if you are you with me so far? You and I in this body, in fact, my wife and I were saying some of the songs we sang tonight, we sang for the first time here at Calvary Chapel 18 years ago. It was before the tent, it was up the street, you know, all of that. You and I have the benefit of a rediscovery of the scripture or the scripture's posture on Israel. We recognize that the promises that God made to Israel, some of them, the important ones, were unconditional. Her promise to the land 
was unconditional. The promise that the angel Gabriel gave to Mary that we'll celebrate shortly at Christmas was that her child was to sit on David's throne. That's not the father's throne. That's not a lot of other things. It's a political throne that did not exist at the time Mary was, you know, that, that there was not a throne of David at that time. Herod was not Jewish. He was a man. Herod did not sit on David's throne. So there's some issues here, unconditional promises that need to be fulfilled. I don't want to badger all of these because most of you in this room are aware of those. And if not, you're in for the, one of the most exciting discoveries around. Um, Israel, we, you and I as students of the Bible know that Israel is God's time clock. You can tell what time it is in history by what's going on in Israel. Are they in favor? Are they dispersed? Are they being regathered, etc.? The promise to Isaiah in chapter 11 was, when I regather my people the second time, they'll never again be uprooted. The first regathering was after Babylon. The second regathering started on May 14th of 1948, celebrating its 40th year next summer. Kind of interesting time. Jesus, the week he was crucified, wept over Jerusalem and predicted that it would be trampled down by the Gentiles until... The time to the Gentiles be fulfilled. That's in several places, but mostly com most commonly quoted out of Luke 21, verse 24. Now, why am I going through all this? Because most of you that have been with us for some time know this is just, you know, this is, you know, Israel and prophecy 1A, basics. Let me tell you what's going on in the body of Christ. There are some doctrines emerging, and these doctrines have some strange aspects. I'm not one of these guys that gets hung up with this doctrinal shift or that. I've seen too many come and go, so I'm just not on that kick anymore. I mean, it's just not where I'm oriented. So I usually don't get concerned. This one that's emerging scares me to death for several reasons. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jude. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.